Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. We journey from the ancient world to the cosmos. Take the adventure. Take the adventure with us. With us. With us. With us. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Parallax Channel, and I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. And we will be doing Classical Studies 101 today. We're doing the Aeneid. We are studying and talking about the Aeneid. I love it. This is fantastic Roman history um, and, uh, and great Roman writing. And uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you would, before we get started, be so kind as to leave a nice rating or a nice comment on whatever platform you are using to listen to us. We'd really appreciate it. And now to get things going, uh, let me introduce to you the one, the only, Dr. Gary Stickle. Welcome, Gary. Hi. All right. Excellent. Excellent. So we are uh, reviewing uh, the uh, book two today of the Aeneid. So let me just give a little uh, sort of, again, reminder, backdrop for the listener. Uh, this is was written in the first century BC during the Augustan period by the great writer Virgil. Rome had just come out of its republic into empire. Caesar Augustus was its supreme ruler. We're beginning to have uh, development into our expansion of Rome and a Pax Romana and a, and a sort of rebirth of Roman values. There are issues with Augustus, many of us have, uh, with his character, and of course with becoming a dictator. But that's sort of the backdrop of that uh, culture at that time. It is a powerful Roman culture. It is still a very strong and vibrant Roman culture. Uh, Virgil is has been tasked by Augustus to write a history, a great epic of the Roman people, where they come from and where their history is. So with that in mind, Gary, would you please lead us into book two? <clears throat> yeah, and um, Virgil was um, the greatest of the Roman poets and the most influential. Every Roman had to read the Aeneid. Uh, and so what, uh, as I said last time, uh, Augustus... Uh, commissioned Virgil to write the Aeneid to be the national epic of Rome, just like the Greeks had the Iliad as the national epic of Greece. So he won the equivalent. And um, so Virgil wrote it and based the whole thing on Homer, which I think is very interesting. Um, And uh, like Homer uh, used a sacred symbolic number system that I uh, discovered, uh, and uh, we have a so because he, he divides his uh, epic into 12 books, 12 being uh, the most sacred number used by Homer. You can listen to a podcast on Gary's sacred number system. I'll probably put it up again so people can uh, familiarize themselves with it again. So uh, Aeneas was a, uh, a prince of Troy, you know, just barely mentioned by Homer, but uh focused upon by Virgil to be the, the great hero of the epic. And um, Aeneas, uh, you know, leads people, as uh, he leads an escape from Troy as Troy is falling. 
to the Greeks. And so book two is about how the Greeks uh, captured Troy, uh, not by um, uh, honorable means of just overpowering the Greeks, but they did it uh, by a stealth war machine, you know, the famous Trojan horse. And we use that phrase, the Trojan horse, today to talk about how, uh, you know, uh, different political entities will uh, try to dominate something by uh, inserting something or, or you know, like uh, uh, in computers. Yeah. Uh, hacking. Trojan horse, Trojan hacking horse with virus. a Trojan. Yeah. They refer to that as a Trojan horse sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, our... Uh, uh, our, I think our military system was recently, just last week, hacked. Uh, and I, I don't know if it's the um, Russians or the Chinese, but uh, it was hacked. Mm-hmm. And I heard one person refer to it as a Trojan horse. Anyhow, there's a synopsis of, um, uh, and I'm, I'm using the translation by Dryden, and uh, who is uh, working just at the end of the uh, Renaissance. And um, so he calls the uh, synopsis an argument, but it's really a synopsis of book and, two. And this and, is what he says. And just uh, Dryden is one of our great uh, English poets for the listeners. So they know yes. uh, the power and the, the having someone of his gift doing these translations. So he says in his uh, argument, Aeneas relates how the city of Troy was taken after a 10-year siege. 10 is another sacred number, by the way. Uh, taken after a 10-year siege by the treacherous by the treachery of Sinon. And uh, Sinon was a Greek left behind. Um, I think uh, Dryden, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I think... Uh, Virgil overemphasizes the role of Sinon, but nonetheless, he's in the chapter. And, uh, you know, because here he puts, by the treachery of Sinon and the stratagem of the Trojan horse. I think it should be the other way around. He declares the fixed resolution. He has taken not to survive the ruins of his country and the various adventures he met with in the defense of it. At last, having been before advised by Hector's ghost, and now by the appearance of his mother Venus, he's referring to Aeneas now, he, meaning Aeneas, is prevailed upon to leave the town, meaning to escape the town, and settle his household gods in another country. In order to do this, he carries off his father on his shoulders and leads his little son by the hand, his wife following him behind. When he comes to the palace anointed for the general rendezvous, excuse me, when he comes to the place appointed for the general rendezvous, he finds a great confluence of people, you know, trying to escape the city, but misses his wife, whose ghost afterwards appears to him and tells him of the land which is destined for him. So that's the uh, synopsis. That's the opening of that. Uh, or the uh, the overview of that, I should say. Um, it's interesting. This chapter has a lot of stuff, I think, in terms of its subtext, too, and what's going on underneath and the connection to the era that Virgil writes in. Um, 
what has happened, where Rome is, and how Rome got there, right? Because um, we'll, we'll get into that when we start talking about when you uh, sort of give us some images and descriptions of the, the destruction of Troy. We can talk a little bit about um, sort of maybe what influenced that and also what um, what Virgil is also trying to convey to us about human life and humanity. So do you want to you want to jump into the yeah, um, this is the opening, just like um, uh, Homer has what's called proems or openings for the Iliad and the Odyssey. This is Virgil's uh, proem for the Aeneid. All were attentive to the godlike man when his lofty couch he thus began, fr when from his lofty couch he thus began. Great Queen, meaning uh, Queen Dido of Carthage, what you command me to relate renews the sad remembrance of our fate. An empire from its old foundations rent, and every woe the Trojans underwent. A people city made a desert place. All that I saw, a part of which I was, not even the hardest of all our foes could hear, nor stern Ulysses, which is a Roman name for Odysseus, nor stern Ulysses tell without a tear. And now the latter watch of wasting night and setting stars to kindly rest invite. But since you take such interest in our woe and Troy's disastrous end desire to know, I will restrain my tears and briefly tell what in our last and fatal night befell. So he's relating Queen Dido of Carthage asked him to relate what went on in Troy, and that's what he's doing here. So this is like, uh, we were talking about this, I think, outside of the podcast, that it's like Alcinous or Alcinous in the Odyssey, that he's being asked to relate this tale. It's it's where, you know, as you said in the beginning, Virgil using that template. So he's got, this yeah. is now Aeneas relating his tale, like Odysseus or Ulysses did. Exactly. And then he goes on, by destiny compelled and in despair, the Greeks grew weary of the tedious war. And by Minerva, and Minerva was a, uh, the, the Roman equivalent of Athena. And by Minerva's aid of fabric reared, which like a steed of monstrous height appeared, and he's referring to the Trojan horse. The sides were planked with pine. They feigned it made for their return, and, and this the vow they paid. Thus they pretend, but in the hollow side, selected numbers of their soldiers hide. He's referring to there Odysseus and his commandos that are hidden inside the horse. With inward arms, the dire machine they load, and iron bowels stuffed the dark abode. Inside of Troy lies Tenedos, an isle, while fortune did on Prime's empire smile. Renowned for wealth, but since a faithless bay, where ships were exposed to wind and weather lay, there was her fleet concealed. So he's talking about as the Greeks sailed away, pretending to uh, give up the war and head home to uh, Greece. But they went to the far side of Tenedos and hid so they wouldn't be seen by the, by the Trojans. There was her fleet concealed. We thought for Greece, her sails were hoisted and our fields released. The Trojans cooped within their walls so long and barred her gates and issue in a throng. Like swarming bees with a delight survey, the camp deserted where the Grecians lay. The quarters of the several chiefs they showed, here Phoenix, here Achilles, made their abode. 
Here join the battles, there the navy road. Part on pile of their wondering eyes employ, the pile by palace and palaces, Athena or Minerva, raised to ruin Troy. Thymedes first, tis doubtful where hired, or so the Trojan destiny required. Moved that the ramparts might be broken down to lodge the monster's fabric in the town. So we're talking about they had to uh, reach a, a hole in the uh, wall of Troy in order to admit the horse that was so big. But Capri's and the rest of sounder mind, a fatal presence of the flame's design, or to a watery deep, or at least to bore the hollow sides and hidden frauds explore. The giddy vulgar and their fancies guide when noise lay nothing and their parts divide. Lakawan, who is a priest of Troy, followed by a numerous crowd, ran from the fort and cried from the far aloud, O wretched countrymen, what fury reigns! What more than madness has possessed your brains? Think you the Grecians from your coast are gone, and are Ulysses' arts so bitter known? This hollow fabric either must enclose within its bind recess our secret foes, or is the engine raised above the town to overlook the walls and then to batter down? Somewhat as sure designed by fraud or force, trust not their presence nor admit the horse. So this is another version of beware of the, of the Greeks bearing gifts. Thus having said against the steed, they, he threw his forceful spear which hissing as it flew, pierced through the yielding planks of jointed wood and trembling in the hollow belly stood. The sides transpired, returned a rattling sound, and groans of Greeks enclosed come issuing through the wound. And had not heaven the fall of Troy designed, or had not men been fated to be blind, enough was said and done inspire a bitter mind, then our lances pierced the, the treacherous wood. And Ilion, meaning Ilios or Troy, and Prime's empire stood. Meantime, with shouts, the Trojan shepherds bring a captive grief and bands before the king, taken to take, who made himself their prey to impose on her belief and Troy betrayed. So he's talking about Sinon there. So that's the proem or you know opening of the poem. And so that's getting us into the whether you know the, they're deciding whether to let the the horse in or not. Uh, you know, it's a, it's the imagery he uses in this is just really fascinating. And again, it's one of those where we don't hear about the Trojan horse. We don't get the Trojan horse in what we had in the Iliad, right? So we get no. it here. Uh, so this is what makes all of these stories, and we'll be doing a lot of the different um, extant. Um, writings that are out there but it really gives us like we, we get these different viewpoints these different perspectives we see different parts of these tales much like you know modern day hollywood does with different stories just frankly a lot better with this writing um so okay so we've got that period so why maybe say a little bit gary about um uh the, as i always mispronounce this lakawan um well, and before that, uh, too, yeah. he goes on for a long time explaining about Sinon. Mm -hmm. And what Sinon does is he tells uh, the Greeks what the horse is about. And, uh, and he says um, that 
the horse is a, a, a gift. It's supposed to represent Athena, and it's a gift to the uh, Athena, you know, to uh, ensure their safe passage home. And also, you know, it's it's essentially it's a, a gift of winning the war to to the Trojans. And of course, he's lying. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> now, uh, Virgil said that. Um, you know, for twice five days, meaning ten, sacred number, uh, he uh, he was telling him about this, which isn't true. I mean, he just told him uh, immediately, but uh, anyhow, uh, Virgil had to make it ten days. So Sinon is like basically a, a, not a double agent, really, but he's he's a, he's a Trojan horse of his own. I mean, they've set him in there to set everybody up to make it seem more believable why the horse would be there. Yeah. It's, 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 it's subterfuge. It's, it's interesting. I always think back on both the Greeks and the Romans and how even to this day, our, our, the, the tricks of the trade, the spy craft, all that kind of stuff, really, you can find it's, it's origin in um, this era. You can, you can just go back to the Romans and Greeks to with the basic techniques that great powers still use, and this is one. This is one: the subterfuge, the pretending, and then of course the Trojan horse, which is a very big stratagem still used to this day. And then um, <clears throat> Virgil mentions um, uh, the Palladium, and like there's a theater in uh, Hollywood called the Palladium. I think there's one in London too. London Palladium. Yeah, there's a there's a few different ones. Yeah, sure. But the origin of it, it, it wasn't a theater. It, it was a statue of Athena. The Greeks call it a Palladion. And yeah. uh, the uh, the significance of it is supposedly uh, when Athena put it in Troy. The city would never fall unless unless the, her statue was taken out of Troy. And so uh, Odysseus and Diomedes steal in the Troy and they steal the palladium out of it. And that allowed the uh, city to fall. Let's do something uh, quickly. And I should do this at the top each time. Hopefully I remember the next time we do this. is just to give a little uh, legend overview for the listener about Greek and Roman gods. So Athena is Minerva and Pallas in our Aeneid universe in the Roman world. Um, Juno, who is a major part of this, she's uh, really on the attack after Aeneas, is Hera in the Greek pantheon. Uh, Venus, his mother, is Aphrodite in the Greek pantheon. Um, Jove is Zeus. uh, Saturn doesn't, you know, Kronos. Neptune does come up. It's Poseidon. Uh, Mars is Ares. Vulcan is Hephaestus. And then that's probably your principal ones. Really, Venus, Juno, Minerva, who are Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena. Okay, uh, so those those are your your main ones. So anyway, sorry, Gary. So then the um, you know after Lacon uh, uh, you know warns them not to bring an end to the city. That is, is, is some sort of a Terrible thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, right after that, uh, and Lacon was uh, Neptune's priest or uh, Poseidon, the goddess, the 
But then uh, Zeus sends two sea serpents, and they come out of the water, and they uh, entangle themselves <clears throat> you know, around two of Lakamon's sons. And then Lakamon goes to try to free his sons, and he gets caught up in, in their entanglement. And uh, they're squeezing him to death, and, he, and then uh, the sea serpents drag him out to sea and kill him. And so, um, you know, Sinan says that, you know, this is punishment for uh, desecrating the uh, Trojan horse. You know, punishment from Athena is not true. It's, uh, well, people are always looking for signs. And I think it's uh, funny that you said Sinan says, kind of like Simon says. Um, but yeah, so we've got this something that's interpreted as an omen. Like, you know, so, and that's a pretty intense omen, however you want yes. to say or, or not. Pretty dramatic. Sure. And um, so, uh, so after that, uh, he says, uh, all vote, meaning uh, the uh, Trojans vote to admit the steed, meaning the Trojan horse. That vows be paid and incense offered to the offending maid, meaning uh, Athena. A spacious breach is made in the wall, basically. The town lies bare. Some hoisting levers, some the wheels prepare and fasten to the horse's feet. The rest with cables haul along the unwieldy beast. So they haul the, the giant horse into the city. And it says, big with destruction, boys with chaplets crown and choirs of virgins sing and dance around. And they say, O sacred city built by hands divine, O valiant heroes of the Trojan line. But the daughter of the king and queen of Troy, Cassandra, she cries out. And, uh, and she tries to uh, tell them not, not to bring it into the city. You know, because she knows, because she has the gift of prophecy, what it's going to uh, result in. And know? she's a very tragic character, a very yes. tragic character, Cassandra, how she got that gift. And uh, it's, it's just horrible. Um, do you want to say anything about Cassandra, how she, how that came about? Yeah, she was um, worshiping in uh, Apollo's temple in Troy. Mm -hmm. And he came into the temple and, and, and basically tried to uh, rape her. Apollo, yeah. And so she refused him. And because of that, he gave her the gift of prophecy, but he also said that uh, no one would believe her prophecies. So she is doomed that way. What What is sinister when you really just think about that myth? He attempts to rape her and she, you know, obviously resists. And so he gives her a curse that she would never be believed. I mean, it's a, it's a really very, very sinister story. And it so, shows yes. you how great gods are not like the Christian God. I mean, it no, can be really even, bad, not bad really behaving. Bad. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, because Virgil says, you know, then placed the dire portent within the tower, Cassandra cried and cursed the unhappy hour, foretold our fate, but by the gods' decree, all heard, all you know, all the Trojans heard, but none believed the prophecy. 
and then uh, he talks. Uh, you know, he, he goes to what happened. You know, he gets into the destruction. Do you want to say that? Because I have some thoughts on what he is using as a template, both for the destruction and also what I think he's conveying. He says a couple of really great lines about just human life, human existence uh, in this section. That is, it is really you yeah. know, incredible. So anyhow, it says, all heard but none believed. Uh, and um, so he talks about how they, they drugged the horse into the city and then they partied, you know. And our men secure, no guards, no sentry held. They didn't put sentries there or guards or anything. But easy sleep, their weary limbs compelled. So in other words, they, they got so drunk they fell asleep and everything. The Grecians had embarked their naval powers from tornadoes. In other words, while this is happening, the Greeks are sailing their ships to shore, uh, safe under the covert of the silent night, and guided by the Imperial's galley's light, when sign and favored by the partial guards unlocked the horse. And so he, he's having him unlock the horse, which I, he didn't do uh, in Homer. Um, and, uh, and then who joyful from their long confinement rose, meaning inside the horse, to Sander bold and stentilist their guide, and dire Ulysses, Ulysses down the cable slide. The numbers they're they're sliding down the, uh, you know the uh, horse, uh, you know from the horse on uh, on on line, on ropes. Right, right. And uh, and. Uh, and then he talks about other, you know, Greeks uh, inside the horse, including Menelaus and everything. And uh, a nameless crowd succeed, their voices join. They invade the town, oppressed with sleep and wine. Those few they find awake their first meet their fate. Then to the fellows they unbarred the gate. So they unbarred the gate of Troy, and by this time the uh, the Greeks had uh, reached the, the gate, the skin gate, and they come pouring into the city. And then okay. he mentions Hector's ghost appears to uh, Aeneas. The, when he describes, um, I guess that's where we're winding down to that. When he describes the destruction that goes on in uh, in Troy, the fires, the burning, the deaths, the slaughter, uh, I kept thinking as he as he discussed it um, that he was being in, that he in some way was influenced by. The destruction of Carthage. Now, of course, he's talking to Dido, the queen of Carthage. She's, so we've got that connection right there. And then, you know, I sort of looked up, um, sort of, I looked up, I looked into just kind of what the historical background at that point for what sources Virgil would have had to draw upon about Carthage. Now, in the time frame, so the destruction of Carthage, just kind of a, like a real quick background, Rome and Carthage had brutal wars, uh, three wars oh, yeah. uh, for supremacy of the Mediterranean, right? Yeah, they and call them the Punic Wars, the right? Punic Wars, exactly. Um, and they were fought, fought from the 3rd century BC to the 2nd century BC, so about 100 years, three wars over that time. When you get to the 3rd Punic War, that's the war where Rome destroys Carthage. That's where you get that 
famous saying, hopefully I'm saying it right in Latin, Delenda es Cartago, Carthage must be destroyed. So they just, just tear the city apart. And it was interesting because one of the, the chief source for that story uh, is a contemporaneous account from Polybius, who was a Greek, uh, as, as you know, Gary, uh, and, uh, but a Roman historian. Uh, he was captured Greek. And so he accompanied Scipio on the destruction, on uh, the Third Punic War. Scipio Africanus was the uh, victorious Roman general who defeated Carthage. Okay, so I found this from the histories, and I thought this was interesting and, and pertinent to this. So this is from Polybius's histories. Scipio, when he looked upon the city, Carthage, as it was utterly perishing, and in the last throes of its complete destruction, is said to have shed tears and wept openly for his enemies. After being wrapped in thought for long and realizing that all cities, nations, and authorities must, like men, meet their doom, that this happened to Ilium, Troy, once a prosperous city, to the empires of Assyria, Medea, and Persia, the greatest of their time, and to Macedonia itself, the brilliance of which was so recent, either deliberately or the verses escaping him, he said, a day will come when sacred Troy will, shall perish, and Priam and his people shall be slain. So that's a Roman general quoting that, and that's he's quoting it in the context of the destruction of Carthage. So I wonder how much, and this is you know something to to research, how much of this narrative that Virgil creates is really incredibly rich, incredibly vivid description of the destruction of Troy. I wonder how much of that was drawn upon from the Carthaginian experience. So anyway, just wanted that's to put good, that out there. Well, it's, it's a good it's point. I think it yeah. probably did influence them. Yeah. So, um, so really brutal, really brutal destruction we see. And he talks a lot about too, Gary, this idea of fate, you know, the idea that, you know, he's, his mother, Venus, Aeneas, I should say, uh, Virgil has Aeneas talking about. So Aeneas's mother, Venus, um, uh, stops, uh, Aeneas from, you know, really slaying, uh, I think it's in this case, Helen, but, and she explains to him, she says, you know, this really isn't her fault and it isn't anyone's fault. And she, at least in my translation here, she says, and those to blame are not the hated face of the Laconian woman. That's the daughter of Tyran, uh, Tyndarius, uh, that's Helen or Paris that overturns these or Troy from these high from its uh, high pinnacle. So she's saying it's not their fault. It's not their reason. And then earlier we get the line where it says, for all the gods on whom the kingdom stood have quit our shrines and altars and gone away. So it's really talks about the, a lot of this chapter points out that the gods abandon these, you know, it's, it's people. And that it's, again, it's not, it's not Helen's fault. It's not Paris's fault. It's the fault of the gods to let this come to this. So I wonder, again, it makes me think about the fault that Brutus lies is not in our stars, but in ourselves for we are the underlings. That's very within the lifetime. Now it's not a direct quote. That's Shakespeare, of course, but it's about um, what happens to, to Julius Caesar. And that's part of Virgil's lifetime. So having lived through the civil wars in Rome and seen the destruction, the bloodshed that occurs, and he must have, from what I've understood about Virgil, he was a very sensitive soul. He must have wondered why the gods 
allow this of his own people. So he probably drew a little bit from Carthage, a little bit from his own experiences, but very humane, just like we talked about with Homer. Homer yeah. was a very humane writer. Uh, and I, Virgil strikes me the same way. I mean, what do you think? I think he seems very... Oh, yeah, I, no, I agree. It's very passionate and everything. Yeah. So how do we how do we wrap this up, Gary? What are, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, he, he mentions different uh, important characters. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, sure. How Cassandra was assaulted, you know, in her bed, and uh, and he says the Greeks behave like as hungry wolves with raging appetite and everything. And he says, "What tongue can tell the slaughter of that night? What eyes can weep the sorrow and the fright? An ancient imperial city falls, and streets are filled with frequent funerals. Houses and holy temples float in blood, and hostile nations make a common flood. It's pretty dramatic stuff." He talked about Cassandra being dragged by her hair, mm -hmm. and uh, and he talks about the whirlwind gathers as the Greeks are attacking the city, mm -hmm. um, and then he it's also talks the about how Aeneas gathers his family. He gathers, yeah, his, I was about to say the beautiful, beautiful section. His father, who is I guess enfeebled, and he has to carry him, and then he takes his son by the hand and. His uh, wife, Carissa, follows by behind, <laughs> and then somehow she gets separated. And that, That's the one, the one real flaw, but it also speaks to that era. We've talked about this with uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey and the other stuff we talked about in the Greco-Roman era. These are patriarchal worlds, and I, I find it astonishing that he loses his wife. Yeah. I mean, I mean why, why everybody, he... but his wife gets sort of like, oh, well, that's just too bad, like, you know. Yeah. And why isn't he holding his wife by the hand and the wife can hold the, the, the child by the hand? You know? It's I, it's amazing. I know. It's just, it says to you how, what kind of value women had in these cultures, you know? Yeah. <sighs> anyway, but, uh, but other than that. Like, like you said, it, it mentions um, uh, Queen Hecuba and King Priam and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and does, you know, and how Priam is killed, you know, thus Priam fell and shared one common fate with Troy and ashes and has ruined the state. Yeah, that's a hard. Really and then he, hard he sees uh, Helen. He says, the graceless Helen on the porch I spied on Vesta's temple where she lurked alone. And so on. That's amazing. This It's an amazing work. I mean, I, I there I, as I told you, there's something about Virgil's style that resonates more with me. Obviously, I love the Romans, but um, it's, it's a very, it's really a powerful section. I understand why this is your favorite chapter um would you uh, anything you want to leave the listener with in conclusion yeah and this is uh how, how he ends it you know mm -hmm. um his wife carissa um she appears to him as a ghost already and then she tells him uh what's going to happen to him she said then after many painful years are passed meaning with him on Latium's happy shore you shall be cast, where the tender Tiber from his bed beholds and flowery meadows and, and feeding folds. There in your toils, and there your fates provide a quiet kingdom and a royal bride. Their fortune shall the Trojan line restore, and you for lost Cruisa weep no more. So she's saying he's going to find the uh, place where uh, you know Rome will be founded. It's also, you know, not to be 
uh, to be uh, flippant, but pretty convenient for Aeneas. Yeah, the wife just died. She's a ghost now, and she tells you it's okay. You'll find a pretty bride. You'll be yeah. all right. So, um, but still, beautiful chapter, beautiful writing. Um, yeah. Well, it, thank it, you. Even if we can question the uh, yeah the, the gender politics of the era, yeah, the, the you know the morality there. Well, let's give a uh, round of applause to Dr. Gary Stickle. And thank you all for listening. This has been the 34th Circe Salon, the Parallax Channel. We are exploring the Aeneid, and that's great, great, great. Um, thank you all for listening. I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb, and uh, we will be back with you again soon. Take care, and God bless. Mm-hmm.